My global IQ is 109. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jim Falk, president of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. And I have really been looking forward to this program. I read the book uh, just a few weeks ago, and I think one of the best way to describe Front Row at the Trump Show is the way Peggy Noonan did. Everyone knows Peggy Noonan, who writes for the Wall Street Journal, the declarations column. And she said, underlying this book is a story about waking up each morning and trying against the odds to find out what's true. So Jonathan Carl is ABC News' chief White House correspondent. He's also the co-anchor of This Week with George Stephanopoulos. He spent his early career with the New York uh, Post, and we're going to hear about that in a minute. And uh, it's just a, a fascinating read, and I hope that you will be as enticed as I was by this book. Jonathan, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. You know, as, as I sort of gave a hint, You've known Donald Trump longer than probably most journalists. And um, I'd like you to tell us about that first meeting and when you were, were almost a cub reporter uh, with the New York Post. I've, I've known him uh, for just about 26 years. And as I was uh, you know, beginning the process of writing this book, it occurred to me that I knew him not only longer than any of the other reporters at the, uh, at, at the White House, uh, but I think longer than anybody on his staff with the exception of Ivanka. So uh, that photo is from our very first meeting, a crazy story. It's in Trump Tower in his apartment. Um, and if you look at it, 1994, uh, it is just incredible to me as I, as I pulled this, this photo out of a, of a box of photographs that had been in my basement for a couple of decades, how little Donald Trump has changed. Um, the the same tie is still too long. The tie is still too long. It was a black and white photograph. It's a red tie. Uh, the, the suit is essentially the same, maybe a, maybe a few sizes smaller than the one he's wearing now. The, the, the grin is the same, the hair, you know, same basic uh, approach. And, uh, and this is the photo where I've seen him take, you know, how many times, countless times in the White House behind the Resolute with somebody, you know, come over, let's get a shot. But this happened um, when I was a reporter, as you mentioned, at the New York Post. I had only been at the New York Post for, for about six months. And I was an aspiring political reporter. Uh, I'd worked my way up to the basically be the number three person for the New York Post at City Hall, which is basically three out of three um, on, a, on a good day. And, 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 and the Post was the number three or four newspaper in New York, daily newspaper at the time. And Giuliani was the new mayor. But there was a story that day that, uh, that made me decide to call Donald Trump up out of the blue uh, it was a story about Michael Jackson had gotten secretly married, it was revealed, to Lisa Marie Presley. So the king of pop, the daughter of the king of rock, had unmarried and they hadn't been seen in public yet, but they were staying at Trump Tower. <laughs> so I called up the general number. I got it out of the phone book and said, let me talk to Donald Trump. It was like a whim. I didn't think any, I didn't think I would get through to him. I didn't like, you know, but I was like, I just, let's see what happens. And um, I got to his uh, secretary and I said to her, I've got a story to pitch. I want to talk to Donald Trump. I was like, about what? I was like, well, why would the most famous newlyweds on the planet decide to have their honeymoon at Trump Tower? <laughs> and lo and behold, Trump got on the phone 
and uh, said, come on up, I'll show you. So I grabbed a photographer and I was, next thing I knew I was, I was on my way to Trump Tower, which was surrounded by a police barricade at this point to keep away all the paparazzi and the camera crews and the fans and, you know, my, and I walked right in. He showed me all around Trump Tower, showed me where Michael and Lisa Marie were staying, introduced me to the bodyguards, showed me the tunnels underneath Trump Tower that enabled them to get in and out without being spotted by everybody outside. And uh, it was the beginning of a relationship that I had no idea would end with both of us going to the White House. But that's the arc of this book. And that's the story. That's the beginning of the story of this book. So people often say that the office of the president changes the person, they evolve. You've known this guy for 26 years, the president of the United States. How has he changed? Well, there was, there was really only, um, first of all, I think that the amazing thing is how little he has changed. But, but there was a moment where I thought that this had changed him. And it was a fleeting moment, but, but I want to explain it. I've got to, I, 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 I did a lot of, res of reporting about this moment in, in, in the book. There's a chapter. Uh, it is the day that he met Barack Obama for the first time. Um, it was two days after the 2016 presidential election. There you see it. Um, Trump has just won the election and Obama invited him to come to the White House. Uh, and they met in the Oval Office. And as you can see, I'm right there with this group of, of, of reporters. We are the so-called pool. This is inside the Oval Office. So I'm the only television correspondent in there. There are a handful of reporters and a lot of photographers. And you can see Jared, by the way, way off to the, to the right, kind of looking on. He was taking pictures himself. Um, and I have that look of like, oh my God, what am I watching? Pete Souza took, took, took this photo. Um, but what blew me away about this meeting is, uh, first of all, it, it, the two met one-on-one -on -one alone in the Oval Office for about an hour. It was a meeting that was expected to go at the very most uh, 30 minutes. And uh, I was waiting outside that doorway you see behind me um, uh, for him, you know, for the press to be brought in, but, but we weren't brought in. The meeting kept going and going and going and going. And when we were finally brought in, I had this sense that I had seen a side of Donald Trump that I had never seen before. It was the first time I was in a room with him where he was not the primary focus of attention, where he was not in charge, where he was not the person introducing everybody, calling the shots, directing, stage managing. This was Obama's meeting. So it was Obama that called the press in. It was Obama who made the opening remarks. It was Obama that you know, invited uh, Trump to, to, to say some words. And when I, when I looked at the two of them together, keep in mind, so it's an hour long conversation and I spent a lot of time trying to report on what exactly happened during that hour. Um, but, but the president, Obama, um, outlined to Trump some of the major challenges facing, uh, facing the country. And I think that Trump in that room for the first time um, with, you know, the first time really being able to process that he had won this election, an election I do not think that he thought he was going to win, um, that he seemed humbled, that Donald Trump, yes, Donald Trump seemed humbled. 
Um, his, his body language, I took some photographs. I put one of them in the book. By the way, one of the parts of the book that I actually um, didn't do until after I had written the manuscript, gotten through all my edits, but the photo section, because I've got just a, just a unbelievable collection of photos over, over the years uh, that I really hadn't taken the time to go back and look at. Um, but I, I look at those photos now that I took in the Oval Office and Trump is a little bit hunched over. He has this look as if the, the surroundings, he's like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? And he praised Obama in that meeting, um, praised him quite effusively, said that he would be seeking his counsel uh, as he became president. All of that went away, obviously. And that little moment of humility that I thought I saw was gone within 24 hours. Um, but, uh, but it's remarkable how similar he is. Um, he is the same guy. The thing that has changed is that the stakes are so much higher. So as a real estate developer, as a pop culture figure in, uh, in New York, um, a fixture of the tabloids, he was a serial or serial exaggerator. He boasted everything about himself. It was always the greatest the this, the that. That's the way he operated. And that is fine and means one thing in that context, but now the stakes are so much different. When, I mean, even like, look at what we're seeing now unfold, you know, in the pandemic. Every time he's before the press, most of what he's talking about is what a great job he's doing. It's almost as if he's still trying to tell you how great Trump Tower is. Well, his, his skin is not that thick. Let's go back because I want to um, talk with you in a second about the role that you have with the White House Correspondents Association. But there was that dinner uh, where uh, President Obama sort of made fun of President Trump. And look at that if we can now. About uh, Mr. Trump, he certainly would bring some change to the White House. All kidding aside, obviously, we all know about your credentials and breadth of experience. Um, for example, uh, no, seriously, just recently in an episode of Celebrity Apprentice at the steakhouse, the men's cooking team uh, did not impress the judges from Omaha Steaks. And there was a lot of blame to go around, but you, Mr. Trump, recognized that the real problem was a lack of leadership. So ultimately, you didn't blame Little John or Meatloaf. You fired Gary Busey. And these are the kind of decisions that would keep me up at night. <laughs> so that was the dinner at the, the White House Correspondents Association, which some people have speculated that that's when President Trump said, I'm, uh, I'm going to get this guy. I'm going to be president. I was, I was at that dinner. Uh, I talked to Donald Trump at that dinner. Um, reminisced with him a little bit about uh, the, the story about Michael Jackson, Lisa Marie Presley at that dinner. Um, and as the president of the White House Correspondents Association, uh, Trump, in a rather surreal meeting I describe in the book, summoned me to the White House, uh, to, to the Oval Office, uh, in September, just this past September. And he was wanted to complain about a story I had, I, I had done, but, but he spent the first 10 or so minutes of the meeting talking about the 2011 White House Correspondents Dinner 
which is kind of an interesting thing um, to spend his time on. And he, he wanted me to know that that was not why he ran for president. And he wanted me to know that he was not upset with, um, with, uh, with, with Obama's uh, speech. He thought it was okay, kind of funny. Um, so he wanted to, he wanted to totally change the history of, 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 of that event. But that was a very targeted hit by Obama. He, um, of course, it came as uh, Trump had gone on this crazy racially charged racist uh, crusade uh, to to challenge Obama's legitimacy as president by claiming that he was not born in the United States. So that event, one thing I learned subsequently was that Josh Ernest, who was then the deputy press secretary at the White House, actually called the president of the White House Correspondents Association at the time, who is Steve Scully, who is with C-SPAN, to make sure that Steve Scully knew that uh, it was gonna be important for C-SPAN to know exactly where Donald Trump was sitting and to be ready with the cutaway reaction shots. So that's why instantly they knew exactly right there. They were focused on those reaction shots and those reaction shots are almost as remembered as well as what Obama said because he got, Trump seemed to get angrier and angrier and angrier. Uh, everybody in the room is, 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 you know, in stitches laughing and Trump is, not happy and um and it was it was humiliating to him although he wanted me to know that the only reason why he didn't laugh is because of who he was sitting with and didn't want to make them feel uncomfortable and it was like he had a whole story about everything well let's yeah. uh let me remind everyone you can ask questions go ahead and write them out or if you'd like to ask a question uh live uh just raise your hand we'll get to many as many as we can John, tell us really about uh, the role of the White House Correspondents Association, because it really does get to the point of how important journalism is in our country. Well, um, the White House Correspondents Association has been around since 1914, um, founded because Woodrow Wilson was having uh, pretty much weekly press conferences. Um, and there were people coming that were not journalists. There were people that were speculators that were coming and there were charlatans of one form or another and, and, and stuff that was supposed to be off the record was, was getting out. And, and Wilson said, I'm gonna stop doing this unless you guys get control over who's coming. And the White House correspondents, 11 people were, you know, 11 journalists founded to basically determine who was gonna come to, uh, to Wilson's press conferences. But it has been an incredibly challenging time right now because we have had to go to court twice uh, since I have been doing this uh, to fight the White House uh, uh, when they have attempted to take credentials away um, uh, from journalists, one most famously the Jim Acosta case. And, and we, we have a really wonderful uh, lawyer, uh, counsel pro bono, uh, his name is George Lehner, who wrote a document, our amicus brief in that case, which I, I talk about at some length in the book, I think it's one of the one of the most important documents in recent times on the First Amendment. Really, about why you cannot allow, um, why the First Amendment cannot allow uh, the the White House to determine who can and cannot cover the president based on you know based on their whim. And it's a really powerful document. Um, and so, so we've had those legal battles we have had to do. We've had a situation where the president. Um, has um, 
you know, has, has vilified the press and, and, you know, as enemy of the people, fake news, all, all of this. Um, and then we've had this, the, the, the pandemic where um, as this pandemic, as, as this crisis has hit, we had to face a challenge of how can we continue to cover the White House, protect our own health, um, protect the health of the, um, of, of, of the people that work at the White House and continue to do our story. And there's, there's a, an event from last week in the Rose Garden. We have had to limit the number of reporters coming into the White House so we can do social distancing in a very cramped place. The Rose Garden is big in comparison, but the, the briefings you've seen in, in the press room, it's a very small space. There are 49 seats and on, in, on any normal time when a president is in there, you'll probably have upwards of 100 journalists in there because people cram up and down the aisles and the back. And of course, every seat is taken. So now we now have marked off only 14 seats and we've had to do an elaborate rotation of who can be in there and try to be representative um, of, of the press corps at large. And it's been an immensely challenging time, um, but I think a really important time. Who sits where? Well, we, we do, the White House Correspondents Association, and we've had to battle a bit. The White House has, you know, it, this White House has suggested at very times they were going to take it over from us and, and even or, or throw us out of the White House or we're going to determine the seating assignments. I mean, in the in the early days of the Trump White House, I mean, you know, I thought for sure Sean Spicer was going to go in there and make sure that it was, you know, Breitbart and, um, you know, uh, Newsmax and Fox and like nobody else, you know, um, and, and, and we've had to fight to, to maintain, you know, our, our ability to do that. Um, but it's, it's a really, I think, I think it's an important organization. When I signed up for this job, I had no idea what I was really going to be up against. And you want to do it all in the context of not being in a battle directly with, with the White House, because we, we covered the White House. But we, we, so our issues are access, you know, First Amendment, um, and, and making sure that we can do, do our job and cover the president. But we, we are not the opposition party. That he, he wants to define the press as the opposition party. So we have to push back when it's absolutely essential to push back correct the record when the record absolutely has to be corrected, but continue to do our jobs and to treat the president um, in a fair and objective way, just like we would any other political figure. Let's talk for, uh, for a minute about the role of the press secretary, because there certainly have been some incredible men and women who have held that position from obviously Jim Brady, Marlon Fitzwater, and, and others. Right. Who, I, I guess that was the first... Uh, press secretary you worked with. Is that right? Yep. 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 I've worked now with 14 different press secretaries. Which is and probably more in this administration than any other. Number four. We have a question from Lynn Lewis. Uh, she's one of our viewers. Is this the first president who has conducted his own press briefings and not as press secretary? And as you said, how many press secretaries has, has he had? But you know, yeah. answer, but what is the role of the press secretary from 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 your vantage point? Well, uh, for, first to quickly answer that question, yeah, you know, we've never had a 
have had a president do daily press briefings like he was doing for some time at the beginning of this crisis. And by the way, the amazing thing about that is the press secretary was nowhere to be seen. It was, you know, at that point it was Stephanie Grisham. She wasn't even in the room when the president would conduct those briefings, which is something, you know, it's just hard to imagine. And she, of course, never, she served in that job uh, for the better part of a year and never once held her own press briefing. Uh, I mean, that's just a, a entirely new standard. On paper, she was the most powerful press secretary ever because she was simultaneously the press secretary, the communications director, and the press secretary for the first lady. Um, but uh, really, um, you know, Donald Trump is the press secretary. He is the communications director. And I mean, he is his own chief of staff. He, it is, he is the one calling the shots here. Every press secretary I have, I have seen, all four of them so far, you know, have had to try to gauge how he, you know, knew that first of all, there you, you, you have all four of them. So, you know, Spicer would be out there and sometimes during one of his briefings, the president would tweet something. <laughs> You know, and then Spicer would be asked about it. He's like, "Well, the tweet speaks for itself," because he had no idea what, you know, what 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 the president was, um, you know, what he was going to be doing to undermine what he was saying from the podium, or or to have a different message. But that's, uh, you know, the the the, the truth truly is that 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 it, it is Trump. It is Trump who is 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 his own person. And so we went over a year without a press secretary holding a briefing. Now, Kaylee McEnany has started to hold briefings. But during that time, Trump, it was, it was on one hand, it was kind of, we complained, we made an issue of it. It's important for press secretaries to have briefings. But, you know, Donald Trump on, you know, on, on an almost daily basis is taking questions from reporters. Well, I, I think he sort of views himself as the Bruno Arledge <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, he's, I mean, I say that, you know, this is, the, I call it the Trump show because that's how he sees it. And he sees himself as the executive director of the Trump show. Uh, he's obviously the star of the Trump show. He is the chief publicist of the Trump show. This is his show. So we have a, a question from Martha. Many individuals in the White House press corps often interrupt the president's answers during press conferences and appear to be more combative than we've ever seen than any other occupant in the office. Do you think the press corps is under any obligation to demonstrate respect to the office of the president, no matter who the incumbent is? Well, I, I thank you. said Martha? Yes. Mm -hmm. I, Martha, thank you for the question. And I absolutely think that we respect the uh, need to and must respect the office of the presidency. And more than that, respect the fact that the person holding the office of the presidency uh, was elected by the American people. Um, and so you're, you're, you're respecting all that that represents. And I think that, that, that there are certainly times where it has been incredibly contentious in there. And, um, Excuse me. One of the uh, one of the, one of the challenges of doing uh, appearing from home is is the the phone may ring and <laughs> um, Sorry, my dog barked a minute ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, and 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 I think that there have been times when it has been uncomfortably contentious in there. I, I do have to say though that um, uh, you know the president is driving much, if not all of that. There's the famous thing that had the, the questioning from Jim Acosta and I write at length about that. I, you know, I, I wasn't comfortable sitting there and exactly how Jim 
went about asking the questions and still kept on going. But the way the president, the way the president personally and savagely attacked Jim Acosta was really, was really beyond the pale. Um, and the way he does it on an almost daily basis now, um, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's my friend Weijia Jiang of, uh, of, uh, of CBS News and, and she's the only Chinese American reporter out there at that given point. And the president kind of lashed at her saying, ask China that question. And, you know, and she felt, and I think legitimately felt that, that, that she was doing that because she's Chinese American. Although she moved to this country when she was two years old and was raised in West Virginia, uh, you know, the president was implying that she had some kind of, an, of, a, of a different loyalty. Um, so, so but, 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 the video of what he's how he uh, gave you a review sure. of your reporting skills. Sure. Uh, does it, did serve in the previous administration. Oh, you didn't tell me that. Oh, I see. You didn't tell me that, John. You didn't tell me that it served in the previous administration. You mean the Obama administration? Thank you for telling me that. See, there's a typical. Fake news deal. You asked now, me when look, she was appointed. Look, I told you when she was appointed. You're a third-rate reporter, and what you just said is a disgrace. Okay, you asked me. You said, "Sir, just got appointed." <laughs> so, I mean, look. Yeah, uh, how do you, you know, handle that? Um, so I, I, I think it's really important, even when the president is. And by the way, he went on to tell me I would never make it. He's like, "You'll never make it." Um, you know, is I don't take it personally. I, I, I. I you know, I don't want the story to be about me fighting with the president, but you know, I've got to, like, again, I've got to get, I've got to correct the record. I've got to like say, I mean, he was at that point, you know, we were going back and forth over what the inspector general at the, uh, at the HHS had said about testing in the country. And, it, and he was trying to turn it into, you know, a whole different thing and, 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 a, and a war on the media. We, we need to keep focused on what the issues are that matter, the facts of what the administration's doing, what he is doing. Sometimes it does get very contentious in there, uh, often driven by, by the president himself. But what's interesting is, is on one side of it is Martha's question, which I think is a totally legitimate one. You know, shouldn't you respect the office? I think the answer is yes. The other, the other side that I get uh, is I have people saying, why do you let him go on and on? Why don't you yell out? That's not true, Mr. President. Why don't you, you know, um, you know, get in his face or walk out when he's saying, I mean, you, you, you have, so you have some people that, that think that we're not being respectful enough of the president. And you have some people who think that we are legitimizing uh, the president, which I think is kind of a funny phrase because I think the electoral college is the, is the body that legitimized uh, the president. But, you know, our job is, is to, uh, is to ask questions, including hard questions. And I did it of President Obama. Um, I did it of President Bush. Um, and, uh, and, I, and, I, and I do it of, of, of President Trump. And I, 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 you know, I treat all three men with, with respect that, uh, and, and ad, you know, ad, uh, for having that office, respect for the office, respect for who they are. But it, but it does not mean that we shy away from asking tough questions. That is our job. Let's hear from Ray Termini. Uh, go ahead, Ray. Will the United States ever be the same after Trump? I mean, it seems to me that many people, Democrats and Republicans, are now defining the truth in relative terms, accepting as true only what they want to believe and yelling fake news at everything else. It's a really good question, and it, I, I feel like it 
I, I hope that you can read the epilogue uh, from my book. Can, would you mind if I read a little passage? Because it, it's, no, directly, it's directly on that. And, and, and the context here is I, I talk about how the president was very angry with me because I mentioned Hurricane Dorian you know, back in September that, that he had said it was going to go to Alabama and the National Weather Service said that it wasn't. And then it prompted this whole week, you know, Sharpie Gate. And, you know, and it was kind of a trivial story, uh, to be honest, but it, it dominated news coverage for a week, you know. Um, anyway, so I, I, in the conclusion I write here, uh, history will little note the president's deceptions to cover up a simple mistake he made about the hurricane's path, but it will long remember that he used the power of the presidency to blur the lines between truth and lies. Donald Trump was a serial exaggerator long before he ran for president. It's how he built the brand. As a 37-year-old Donald Trump told uh, the New York, New York Times sports writer Ira Burkow in 1984, quote, creating illusions to an extent is what has to be done. That's how he made the top floor of Trump Tower the 68th floor, even though the building only has 58 stories. The floor directly above the fifth floor was labeled the 14th floor, skipping 10 numbers, and voila, a 58-story building appears to have 68 floors. Donald Trump hasn't changed since he pulled off that sleight of hand decades ago, but when he was lying about the number of stories in his buildings, it really didn't matter. When he uses the power of the presidency to convince supporters they shouldn't believe what they see with their own eyes, it does matter. And I, I, I go on to make, make the case that although we, have a, we are deeply divided in this country, the danger is, and what I worry about, is that we now have a situation where not only are we divided in terms of views on fundamental issues, we're divided on what is true and what is false. And if you cannot come to an agreement about what is true and what is false, you cannot overcome that divisions. So let me, let me read one more paragraph on this about how it's not just Donald Trump. Donald Trump didn't start the war on truth any more than he created the deep divisions in our country. The media landscape is a factor here. The proliferation of news outlets and the democratization of information through the internet give Americans the power to be more informed than ever, but it also makes it easier for us to feast on a diet of information that echoes and never challenges our biases and our beliefs. This deepens our divisions and makes them more difficult to overcome. Donald Trump has poured rocket fuel on this deeply destructive trend. He may be motivated only by an insatiable desire to promote himself, but his assault on truth is toxic and contagious. It infects those who support him and those who oppose him. And the contagion is global. So I do worry um, that there's been a lesson learned from all of this um, that has infected people on, on all sides of the political spectrum and to a degree the news media as well. Now I'm hopeful that, you know, that, 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 that this doesn't do lasting damage at the end. I, I end on a very optimistic note, but, but I, to the listeners, to the viewers, uh, you know, question here, I, 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 I think about that a lot and I struggled with that as I finished this book. John, I want to thank you so much for writing such a good book and for all the work that you do each and every day to, to bring us the news. John, again, congratulations and, and, and stay well. 
Hey, thank you. And you too. And I really appreciate uh, you having me on. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you all uh, who are watching. I wish we could have done it in person. Maybe we'll, no, we'll, we'll get you to Dallas. Back. We'll get you some good barbecue back in Dallas one of yeah. these days. Thanks again, everyone. Goodbye.